Hey, welcome to the Kingdom Church Podcast. We're so glad you could join us. You're listening to the second part of our series, Going Through the Gospel of Mark. Whatever you're doing, wherever you are, sit back, relax. Here it is. Hey, you guys can take a seat. Thank you so much for being here. Church Online, hey, we're so glad you could be here. We love you. Uh, everyone in the building, everyone watching online, wherever you are, uh, if you call Kingdom Church home, we love you. If you don't call Kingdom Church home, hey, don't wait any longer because we love you. Uh, if, you're, if you're new to Kingdom Church, uh, my name's Harrison. I'm the pastor here. Welcome. So glad you could be here. Uh, if you're not new to Kingdom Church and uh, you've been here for a while, one thing I like to do is I like to get you to stay standing while we read the passage of Scripture. Today i let you guys sit down. Now, some of you guys are happy because you're like, I want to sit down and worship. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. This is the wrong church for that. Um, but anyways, the reason that I let you guys sit down is because uh, for those that call Kingdom Church home, I don't want anyone getting too comfortable. I just have this belief that comfort uh, actually inhibits growth. And so I don't want anyone getting too comfortable. I don't want anyone thinking they know what's next. Because a lot of times when we think we know what's going to happen, we're not ready for what God actually wants to do. Is there anyone awake this morning? Listen, y'all, we just came off the best 930 service we've had in the history of Kingdom Church. And so uh, I'm going to need to hear you this morning. So is there anyone ready? Come on. We're, uh, We're in a series going through the Gospel of Mark. And uh, what we're going to do, and one of the reasons I also got you guys to sit down is because uh, I'm going to read a lot of passages of scripture this morning because I actually want to just go through a story, and we're going to kind of go through it verse by verse. But we're in a, a, a series right now called The Gospel of Mark, and this is part two. And what we have said is that the gospel of Mark is good news. And so today, we're going to hear some good news if there's anyone ready to hear some good news. So part two, we're going to start in Mark chapter one, and uh, I'm getting right into this message, so you better be ready to go. Uh, Mark chapter one, starting in verse 32, and we're going to make our way to chapter two eventually, but I want to start here. Mark chapter one, it says, that evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and the demon possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases, and he also drove out many demons. So I told you we were getting right into it. Now, I want to set the scene here. So Jesus is in a town called Capernaum, and he's at the house of a man named Peter. Now, if you guys were here last week, one thing that we learned was that the Gospel of Mark, much of his account came from Peter. Peter gave him the info. And so where we find ourselves is at Peter's house, and Jesus is there, and it says the whole town was there. Now, this is most likely a hyperbole. Uh, However, let's say, for example, maybe the whole town was there. That's 1,500 people. Most people believe that Capernaum was about 1,500 people in size. And so literally what they are saying is the whole town was gathered. Why? Because Jesus was healing people. Because Jesus was casting out demons. Jesus was doing a whole bunch of amazing things. Now, this is really important, and we're going to see it, because I want to bring things out of Scripture this morning. A really good thing that you can do when you go through Scripture is to try to ask yourself questions. Why is this there? What's important? What I want us to see is the wording, the whole town was there. The whole town was there in order, why? To be healed or for Jesus to do something for them. You want to know what this lets me know? It lets me know that everyone has something. If you're taking notes, right, everyone has something. You see, a lot of times we live in a way where we look at other people and we think, you know what, if I just had what they had. 
Like that person has their life together. If I just had what they had, if I just, you know, I had that job, if I had that life, if I had that wife, if I had that much money, if my bank account looked like that, like then I would be good. But what Mark chapter one is letting us know, and you need to understand this, the reason that you stop need to look at other people is because everyone has something. Everyone has something. It says the whole town was there and Jesus was healing people. What a scene, right? Jesus is there healing. People are lined up. And let's just be honest. Can we be honest? If Jesus was here to heal today, how many guys would be lined up? Like, Jesus, I got some things. I got some things. I got a bad shoulder. I got a bad back. I got a broken tooth. I got some stomach issues. Y'all need to pray for your pastor. Getting attacked on every end by the devil. But Jesus is greater. Come on, somebody. But the point is, everyone has something, right? Like, we all have something. So Jesus is healing the people, and he's healing them late into the night. And now Mark doesn't give us many details, but basically the event kind of ends. And we're going to find out in a second, there's so many people, not everyone gets healed. But Jesus goes home to sleep. And so it says, very early, this is Mark chapter 1, verse 35, the next day. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Jesus, everyone is looking for you. Now, in a sense here, the disciples, and Peter specifically, who's Simon, Simon Peter, they're rebuking Jesus. And they're rebuking Jesus because what they're saying is, hey, hey, Jesus, I'm not sure. Like, I get it. Like, you're going into solitude and you're praying. Like, that's really cool. But you may not have noticed, but, like, the work wasn't finished last night. Like, there's a whole bunch more people that are here that want to be healed. What are you doing? What are you doing? Everyone is looking out here for you. Everyone's looking for you. And some of us read this and it's kind of like, you know what? Like, that's like who does Peter think he is? Like, I would never tell Jesus what to do. Oh, you wouldn't? How many of us have, come on, let's be honest, how many of us have had times where we thought we knew better than God? It's like, God, I know what you say, but like, it's 2021, bro. Aren't we past some of that stuff? Like, Jesus, I know you said be patient. I know you have a plan for my life, but like, I, I think I actually know better. And so if we could actually get off our high horses for a second, I think we could relate with Peter. And that's one of the reasons I love Peter is because Peter is relatable. And what you're going to see is this isn't the first or the last time that he rebukes uh, Jesus. Uh, but Jesus claps back every single time. Now, it says, Peter says, everyone is looking for you. Everyone's looking for you. You see, what was so hard for the disciples and the people of, uh, of following Jesus to understand is that when Jesus was in solitude, when Jesus was by himself, that was counter to what they believed was important. Because for them and for the draw of most people, what's important is always the crowd, right? Like that's what's important. The people are there. Like there's so, and so for them, they had the perspective of power. And the perspective of power is that power is found in a following. Power is found in people praising. Power, power is found in people just looking to you. And so for Jesus, when he's in solitude, for them, they can't understand it because they have the perspective of power. Because the draw of humans a lot of times is for the crowd. Like, I just, want, I just want people to notice me. And so for Peter, we find out this is his house. And so Peter's house was flocked with people. So you can imagine the pride of Peter. He's like, yo, I got the whole town of Capernaum here. I got everyone here. So, so what are you doing, Jesus? Because the draw of people 
is to please other people. It's for crowds. It's, it's for the fame. It's for the limelight. I know you guys thought it was a TikTok thing, but it's long before that. There's something inside of us that, that, that wants the crowd, that wants the fame. And so they're like, Lord, what are you doing here? Everyone is looking for you. And maybe there's some genuineness in there, right? Like, hey, there's people there that need to be healed. There's sick people there, Jesus. Everyone's looking for you. So as I read that, I think that Jesus is going to say, okay, let's go. Okay, I'm going to go heal the people then. But Mark chapter 1, verse 38, it says, Jesus replied, let's go somewhere else. Everyone is looking for you. Yeah, let's, let's go somewhere else. To the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. I want to ask a question, and it's the title of our message, so if you're taking notes, you can write this down. What are you looking for? What are you looking for? Jesus, everyone's looking for you. Jesus replied, let's go somewhere else. Now, I can imagine in this moment the shock of the disciples, the shock of Peter. Like, what do you mean, let's go somewhere else? And even more so, what do you mean, this is not why you have come? Because if you have not come to heal all of these people that are literally lined up at your door and they're being made well and their lives are so much better, like, can you imagine if you were blind one moment and now you can see? And Jesus did that and Jesus healed you and then Jesus says, hey, that's not actually why I came. I, got, I have something else to do. That's not why I've came. Well, what are you looking for? Here's the thing I want us to ask, and I want you to write this down. I'm not asking it. And it's a point that will make more sense as we go along. But what we learn here is that Jesus did not come to give us a better life. Jesus did not come to give us a better life. Now, Bible scholars might say, hold on one second, pastor, haven't you read John 10, chapter 10, that says, I have come to give them life and life abundantly? What kind of heretical nonsense is this? What do you mean that Jesus has not come to give me a better life? Now, you need to understand something. I happen to believe that when you follow Jesus and understand what he's done for you, I happen to believe that that will actually give you a better life. I think it's going to give you joy. I think it's going to give you peace. But what Jesus wants the disciples to understand is that his primary mission, his primary focus was not to come and give us a better life. Why? Why not just give us a better life? Why not just heal every single disease, every single thing that is wrong? Like, what do you mean? Why wouldn't Jesus want to give me a better life? I'll answer the question like this. The reason that Jesus doesn't want to give you a better life is because better is always relative. And what I mean by that is that better can and will change. Have you guys ever got the exact thing that you wanted and then when you got it after a while you realized you didn't actually need it? And so what happens on the sliding scale of better is that better always changes. Jesus did not come to give us a better life. I'll explain it like this. I was on social media this last week, um, and I know that, you know, we got some smart people in the audience, and so you guys don't just share everything, agree with everything on social media, right? Okay. You should. 
But I have this thing, and maybe it's a disease, maybe it's just my mindset, but when most people share things on social media, um, I find a way to disagree with it, even if it's probably right. And so I saw this thing that some people shared this last week, and um, I'm going to show it to you on the screen in a second, and, and you're going to say, Pastor, just, like, what's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that. Just let them have that. Like, why you got to be like that? But can I read it to you? Can I show it to you? Two of you? Can, can I show it to the rest of you? Thank you. <laughs> Uh, online, we'll, we'll get something up there for you. Um, but I saw this online, and some people shared it. And it said, them, why do you believe in God? Me. It says, you ever been hungry but still ate? You ever been hurt but still survive? You ever been broke but still made it? That's God looking out. Now, the essence of what this is saying is saying the reason I follow God, people ask me, why do I follow God? It's because no matter how hard things have been, I've always eaten. I've always had a house. No matter how sick I've got, I haven't died. <laughs> That's God looking out. That's why I believe in God. And I saw that and I understood the sentiment and I wanted to give them that thing and I wanted to just agree with it. But then I began to ask the question, well, that's good, that's fine. But what happens when you don't eat? What happens for the people that get sick and they actually do die? I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but people starve to death every day. And so if the only reason we follow God is because he's looking out on these things because he's given me all these things to get a better life, the question happens, the question is, what happens when those things cease? What happens when better ceases to be better? What happens when you're hungry? What happens when you're sick? What happens when you don't get what you thought that you wanted? You see, if you follow that logic, wouldn't that not mean that God isn't real? That God doesn't exist. You see, when Jesus says to Peter, he says, I have not come for this. This is supposed to ask us a question in our minds. Well, why then did you come? If you didn't come to heal us, if you didn't come to give us a better life, why did you come? Now, for a lot of us, maybe for the Christians in this room, if you're like, you know, Harrison, like if Jesus didn't come to give me a better life, like I'm kind of lost then because like that's my spiel to get people to Jesus. Like I tell people I follow Jesus because my life is so much better. I tell him I follow Jesus because he got me a new job. I tell him I follow Jesus because he's provided for me. You see my house? Jesus. You see my shoes? Jesus. If Jesus didn't come to give me all of these things, what do I got, pastor? But here's the thing. I want us to begin to tell, tell a better story, especially in Canada, especially in St. Albert. You see, I believe that God is provider. He's Jehovah Jireh, all those good things. But at the end of the day, if the only story we tell is all that God does for us, how do you give God, how do you explain God to someone that has everything? You know what? God has riches for you. Bro, I make six figures. What do you mean riches? Hey, you know what? God's going God's to give you good health. It's like a Harrison, I pay into my health benefits every single month. I got a psychiatrist. I got a naturopath. I'm a sociopath. <laughs> You see, what if, what, what if Jesus was trying to get us to tell a better story? Jesus says, this is not why I've come. And so what happens is the better life, I think, falls short on both sides. 
It falls short on the side if you have everything, and it falls short on the side if you don't have what you think you need. And so Jesus, though, very plainly does not leave us in a dilemma because he says, I did not come to give you a better life. Let's go somewhere else. Now, we're going to go to Mark chapter 2 because they leave Capernaum. But in Mark chapter 2, which is a few verses later, they come back. And as they come back, we're going to begin to see the answer to the question. If Jesus didn't come to give us a better life, why did Jesus come? Everyone following? Mark chapter 2, verse 1, it says, A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside of the door, and he preached the word to them. So in Mark chapter 1, and you're going to see the distinction here in Mark chapter 2, Mark actually tells the story, um, and he's actually a pretty fantastic storyteller. In Mark chapter 1, it's set up the exact same way as we see in Mark chapter 2. The crowd is once again there at the home of Jesus, waiting to be seen, waiting to be healed. Now in Mark chapter 1, we don't get much details. All we know is that he heals, and then he tells the people, this is not why I've come. Now, in Mark chapter 2, very specifically, Mark, who is always in a hurry, we learned that last week, he's going to slow down intentionally. And he's going to slow down because what he's going to do, he's going to begin to show us why he actually came. So we're back at Peter's home. This is building up. It says in verse 3, some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. So again, it's getting very specific. There's this crowd. And the crowd is there, and it's so big. There are so many people as Jesus is teaching, as Jesus is preaching. And so these men, four men and their friend, they come. Well, four men bring their one friend who is paralyzed to Jesus. Now, I want us to picture this for a moment. Because in 2021, with our advances in technology, paralysis and to be paralyzed, of course, depending on the severity, is extremely, extremely debilitating. You're bound to a wheelchair. Some people are bound to a home. Now, I want you to imagine a paralysis and how devastating it is in 2021. I want you now to imagine paralysis in the first century where there wasn't technology. There were not wheelchairs how we have them. There was not the, the medicine and the stuff that we have them. So for this man, at this time, he's literally stuck. He's a prisoner in his own body. He can't walk, and so his four friends have to carry them, carry him to Jesus. Now, I can imagine these four friends, and perhaps they had caught word of what happened a few days ago. And they said to their one friend, they said, hey, you're not going to believe this. We heard about this guy, Jesus, and he's out healing people, and he's out doing all of these miraculous things. Like, you, it, it, Listen, if we could just get you to him, like what if he could heal you? What if you could walk again? And so these men, I, I can imagine the excitement of these friends as they get to the house. And they get there, and it's absolutely jam-packed. And so it says in verse two, 4, it says, Since they could not get to him, Jesus, because of the crowd, they could not get to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and they lowered the mat that the man was lying on. Literally, they broke the roof. So what would happen is these houses, they'd have a roof, and they tore that roof off, and then under the roof, they would have dirt. And so they actually dug the dirt, enough dirt, that they could lower this man through the roof. Now, the context of this story lets us know this is most likely Peter's home. 
But I think greater evidence, and this is probably Peter's home, is that the Gospel of Matthew, who does not weigh as heavily on Peter, it just says they lowered a man through the roof. Peter, when he gives the details, he says, no, 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 no. They didn't just lower a man. They took off the roof and they dug through it. Those are the kind of details of a man that's had his house vandalized. They lowered him through the roof. All of this just to get a glimpse of Jesus, to get him into the room. And it says in Mark 2, verse 5, it says, when Jesus saw their faith. When Jesus saw their faith. And I read that and I began to think to myself, man, what would it be like if Jesus actually took took notice of your faith? What if Jesus actually saw your faith? You, you, you want to know what's crazy? Can I tell you something? There is only one way to impress God. There's one way. And it is not by good works. It is not by coming to church. It is not by what you eat. It is not by what you drink. There is one way that God is impressed, and it's through faith. It's through faith. It's not through the Bible verse in your Instagram bio. It's not through the Bible verse on your bicep. It's nothing. Faith is the one thing that impresses God because faith is the belief in something that is unseen. And so I wonder what it would be like to live in such a way where God actually took notice of your faith. I began to wonder what could our church look like? Scratch that. What could St. Albert look like? Scratch that. What could Alberta look like? Scratch that. What could Canada look like if there was a church that was full of people of faith? They said, I'm going to believe that God can do more than I could ever dream, hope, think, or imagine. I I talk to too many people, and they say, you know what? Like, I have friends, family member that I just, I wish they could experience Jesus. I wish they could get in the room, but they'll never be here. I said, get thee behind me, Satan, and stop saying never. Start saying not yet. They're not yet here. They have not yet experienced the goodness of God. They have not yet experienced what it means to be loved by Jesus. I'm not saying never. I'm removing that from my vocabulary. It's not yet. Why? Because I have faith. Come on. One commentator, speaking on the faith of their friends and why Jesus was impressed, he said, they counted on Jesus' healing for their friend. Because it would be a lot harder to bring him back up through the roof (laughs) than lowering him. Look at this, look at this. They counted on him walking out the door. They counted on him walking out. You know what that means? It says a one-way trip. There's no way back. Jesus, you're going to do this. Like That's the faith. And it says Jesus was impressed with their faith. Jesus saw their faith. And now I think as I read this, it's going to say, so he said to the paralyzed man, stand up. Stand up. But it says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son. And I can imagine the four friends. Like, this is a good start. Son, like, what what an endearing term. He's going to walk. He's going to be healed. Son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus, (laughs) I can imagine, they're they're wiping the sweat off their face. They got dirt in their fingernails still. (laughs) Yeah, that's nice. That's really nice. 
But like, we, we, we didn't come here for, I love the forget. We, I, we came here to be healed. Like, like this man, Jesus, this man can't walk. Now Mark is setting things up here, right? Implicitly. Basically what he's saying to this man, I, I need us to get this. He's saying, guess what? The main problem of your life is not your affliction. He said the main issue in your life is not the thing that you think needs to be healed. Now, I think there's a very specific reason Jesus waits for a paralyzed person. Because perhaps there was nothing more debilitating literally than to be paralyzed. And so I need you to understand how scandalous this is. Jesus is saying to a man that cannot walk, this isn't the biggest issue in your life. Oh man, Jesus getting canceled in 2021. To say to someone, this isn't your problem. There's something more. He says the biggest problem in your life is your sin. You want to know what he's saying? He said, I'm going to heal the bigger problem. I'm going to heal the bigger problem. You see, as people, we have this thing where we're always focusing on the immediate. The immediate. It's the thing right in front of us. It's the thing that I can see. It's my illness. It's my feelings. It's my disability. It's my bank account. It's my job. It's my relationships. And we're saying, Jesus, I need you to heal the immediate. Jesus, if you're there, if you're real, just come on. Like, why, why don't you do this? Jesus says, that's not why I have come. Because Jesus has this way of seeing past the immediate and letting you know what's actually important. What's the most important thing? And he says the most important thing right now is that your sins are forgiven. Jesus goes deeper to what is actually important. And maybe you won't like this. Maybe you don't want to hear this. 21st century Canadian, St. Albertan, Edmontonian. If you've come farther, thank you so much for being here. Online, American. The biggest issue in your life is sin. And we don't like that word. Because that word makes us feel less than. It makes us feel like we're not good enough. Now, I want you to understand when Jesus talks about sin, he's not even talking about the little things that you do. He's not talking about anger. He's not talking about lust. He's talking about that big chasm that exists. And the chasm that is, exists, which is sin, is the separation that we have from God. Whether we know this or not, our sin separates us from God. It, it, it makes it so we cannot be in a right relationship with God. And so you need to understand how scandalous Jesus' words here are. He's saying, I am going to bridge the gap for you. Your sins are forgiven. Now, most people, when we read this story, we read it a different way. We read it kind of in the Canadian way, right? And it's like, hey, you know what? In life, just get yourself four friends. Like if you just have four friends that can lift you up, if you just have four friends that can just get you into the presence of Jesus and understand when you get into the presence of Jesus, there's going to be some obstacles, but you need to dig and you need to dig and you need to dig and don't you give up until you see Jesus. Come on, somebody. And like that's a part of the story, but that's not the main part of the story. 
And that's not the theme of this story. That's not the thesis. This isn't good advice. This is good news. It's not about what you can do to get to Jesus. Because you want to know what happens? These men work so hard. They're sweating. They rip up the roof all in their work to get to Jesus. And Jesus doesn't give them what they want. You want to know what the lesson is? Stop trying so hard. Stop trying so hard. Stop trying to get the immediate and realize that Jesus wants to get to the important. He wants to get deeper. Jesus says, your issue isn't your situation. It's your sin. It's your sin. Jesus says, I could change your situation, but I don't think that would actually fix your problem. Can I tell you something, church? Maybe Jesus could fix that situation, but it wouldn't fix your problem. Jesus wants to get deeper. Um, I used to, a number of years ago, uh, run a program uh, for young adults. And the purpose of it was that I wanted to reach people far from Jesus so they could experience Jesus. Um, That's kind of always been my thing. And from it, I have great relationships with people and people that are part of our church. Um, But it's funny because um, I kind of, you know, back then, um, I thought I was really good. I thought I was a really good preacher. And I heard a quote, um, and it said, um, the future you will always look back at the past you and consider the past you foolish and unwise. Therefore, you are currently foolish and unwise. I thought I was really good. I thought I was a really good preacher back then. And I had a friend that came uh, to the program. And he came maybe one or two times, and he never came back. But a number of years later, uh, we got to talking, and we were talking about the program. And he said, uh, he said, yeah, Kerrison, like, I really, um, I really enjoyed it. I really like coming. He said, the thing that was really cool was that you said a lot of the same stuff that, like, I hear in my podcasts. Like, the motivational stuff I listened to. Like, it was kind of, like, exactly the same. And, like, I really liked that because it was, like, so practical. And, like, I realized the Bible and, like, the world kind of say the same thing. He never came back. Now, he meant it as a compliment, and I understood that. But really what he was saying, he said, I really enjoyed it because it motivated me. It gave me some practical tips to live better, to to, to experience life in a new way. But what we need to understand is basically what he was saying was after I went there, I was able to live a little bit better. But the truth is, there is nothing unique in the value proposition of living a better life. That's not unique. Can I tell you something? Maybe this sounds crazy. You don't need Jesus to live a better life. You don't need biblical wisdom to live a better life. Can I tell you something? If you eat keto, you'll probably have a better life. If you watch Tony Robbins, you'll probably have a better life. If you really get into Sean T and all that he's doing in P90X or Insanity or whatever the heck he's doing, if you really follow that, guess what? You'll have a better life. If you got some abs, come on, somebody. If, if you eat a little bit healthier, I'm going to become a vegan. I'm going to become a vegetarian. You'll probably live a little bit of a better life. Maybe if you get that job and your salary increases, I know the thing to say in church is money doesn't buy happiness, but guess what? Money kind of helps. <laughs> Being happy. Vacation's kind of nice. When my car can hit those RPMs, my other car couldn't. Like, that's kind of nice. And so uh, this might sound crazy, but guess what? A new job, a new car might actually get you a better life. 
But here's the truth. It's not what you're looking for. And Jesus never claims to say, I've come to give you a better life. In fact, he explicitly tells him, I didn't come for this. Well, why did Jesus come then? Jesus didn't come to give you a better life. Jesus came to give you new life. Come on. Jesus came to give you new life. Do you want to know why you need a new life? It's because of sin. You don't like to hear this, but the Bible lets us know that we are dead in our sins. We are dead in our trespasses. Now listen, I know, I know we live in Canada and we're all really good people, right? I know we were all posting last week about how good we are and how bad those people are. I know for a lot of us, we tip 15%. I know for a lot of us, like we go volunteer, like I'm, I'm a good person. I'm a, I'm a good person, pastor. Those are the bad people. Those are the bad people, but the Bible lets us know that all have fallen short. That all sin, that all are bad, that all are wicked. Now, can I tell you something? I'm going to bring out that feeling that you know is there. As much as you try to push it down, it's there. You're not that good. And you try to push it down because it doesn't make you feel good. But the truth is we need to bring it out. Because what happens when we push it, push it down is we get cancel culture. And I speak very highly against cancel culture because it ticks me off. Not that people should not pay for mistakes. Not that people should not repent. Not that people should not be held accountable. But what I don't like is the idea where we tell other people how bad they are by showing how good we are. That's against the biblical message that all have fallen short. All of us have sinned. And so what Jesus does here, Jesus says, I'm not going to just go to what's immediate. I'm going to go to what's important. And so Jesus goes deeper. He says, I'm going to give you new life. Guess what, son? Your sins are forgiven. This is what you need. That feeling, there's only one way to get rid of it, and it's not through pushing it down. It's not through pushing other people down. It's through Jesus. Verse 6, it says, now, because there's a silence. There's a silence that goes through the place. and No one got what they thought they were going to get. They thought there was a healing, but nothing happened. So it says, now, some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, what they're saying is not wrong. It is true. Only God can forgive sins. Because inevitably, all sin goes against God, and all sin separates us from God. What the religious people here don't understand and what they miss is that Jesus is God. And that's what Jesus is saying. I love this next part. It says, immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. They don't say anything, but Jesus can perceive what they're thinking. And this is how I know and how you know deep down you're not that good. Because maybe you don't say anything, but Jesus actually knows what you're thinking. And so Jesus said, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralyzed man? Your sins are forgiven. Or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. So he asked them a question. 
So he's saying, who is this man that he can forgive sins? Now, for the people listening there, most of them probably had this idea. It's like, well, <laughs> to be honest, it's probably harder to heal someone. Because the truth is, you can just say you're forgiven and there's no tangible evidence to know that you're forgiven. Nothing happens. Nothing changes. And so when Jesus poses this question, the people are thinking to themselves, well, the, the, the easier thing, the harder thing, <laughs> the harder thing is to, to heal someone. But you want to know what's very interesting is that Jesus had healed many people up until this point. In Mark chapter 1, we see that he heals many people. And what's interesting is when Jesus was healing people, there was no pushback. No one said anything. It was only in the moment where Jesus actually forgave sins that all of a sudden the religious people were like, whoa, what are you doing? Do you want to know why? Because they were doing something that humans don't have the authority to do, which is to forgive sin. And so this causes them to question. So he says, which is harder? And he says, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And so he got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. Look at this part. It says, this amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. You see, this is the pull of people. Jesus is claiming that the greater work that he did was the forgiveness of sin. But when he forgives the sin, the crowd is silent. No one says a word. No one cares. But when Jesus heals the man, it says the crowd was amazed, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Oh, my gosh, it's a healing. Do you want to know the reason why Jesus healed the man? He says it. He says, so you know that the Son of Man has authority. The only reason he raised the man up was so they could know tangibly that he had forgiven his sin. He said, I want you to see who I am. But again, the crowd is only amazed because we as people have this thing where we're only amazed with what is immediate. What's right in front of us, what we can see. Now, some of us may be asking ourselves, well, well like, if Jesus can just heal people, why doesn't he heal everyone? Why doesn't he come here and take away my sickness? Why doesn't he come here and take away my disease? Why doesn't he get these thoughts out of my head? Why, why am I feeling this way? Why doesn't God just heal it? That's what the crowds love. You want to know the ultimate irony is that when Jesus is crucified, the Bible tells us that a crowd yells out, we choose Barabbas. If you don't know the story, what happens is they're given a choice between releasing Jesus or releasing this criminal named Barabbas. And this crowd, and understand, Jesus' whole ministry was filled with crowds. There's a story about him feeding 4,000 people, 5,000 people. The, the town, the whole town is here. Now you would think that the crowds would be there flocking. Don't let Jesus die. He made my life so much better. And I wonder, I wonder, I wonder if there are people in that crowd the day that say we choose Barabbas. I wonder if there are people in the crowd that condemned Jesus that were there when Jesus had healed people. 
I just began to wonder because you see, what Jesus knows, maybe we can't see it, is that what's most important in our lives is not what we think is most immediate. And so a lot of times if Jesus just healed everything or did everything that I wanted him to do, it wouldn't actually have a long-lasting impact. The message of Jesus, and what are you looking for? I'll tell you this, what you're looking for is not a better life. You're looking for something more. You're looking for something that only one person can do. He says, son, your sins are forgiven because Jesus wants to go deeper. This last Thanksgiving, uh, many of you guys know, and a part of it is because of your generosity, uh, we were able to donate almost $9,000 worth um, of food to the Santa Barbara Food Bank, uh, 100 baskets for families. Thank you so much for clapping for yourselves. Um, I don't know about you, but I thought that was pretty crazy. Like, it was awesome. Those of you guys, like, that's so much stuff. But it is funny. I'll never forget when we went to go drop the stuff off, and I was with Andrell and a few other people. And as we were unloading the stuff, now, you need to understand, like, we don't, we don't do anything for applause. We don't want to pat on the back. We're just doing it because we want to be the hands and feet of Jesus. We want to give some people some hope and some meals and all of these things. But the truth is, some recognition is nice. And I'll never forget as we were unpacking um, all of these things. And, you know, we feel good about ourselves. We've got a U-Haul of stuff. like, um, And the lady that, that runs the food bank and all the people there, um, when they saw us, again, like I'm kind of expecting, like, you know, their jaws to drop a little bit. Like, look at all that food. Um, but it was really funny. Kind of the first thing that she started talking to us about was how much food they get. And how generous St. Albert is and how generous people are. And so we got, the, we, we got the food, dropped the truck off, and she's just like, hey, you know what? Open the garage, bring them in, on to the next. And that's not to say she wasn't thankful. They were thankful. <laughs> but she wasn't overly impressed in the sense of what we did was not unique. There are many people that are giving to the food bank, and we still give to the food bank. But I remember... After that moment, I had this feeling like, did we miss the mark? Like, what are we doing? And I remember right after this, I read a story. And it was a story about Christian missionaries um, in India. And in the story, the Christian missionaries, they weren't having much traction in why they came, which is to spread the message of Jesus. And so someone from India was commenting on the people that were there and their lack of success. And this is what he said. He said, the Hindus are not looking for us to send them men to build schools and hospitals. Although those are things that are good and useful in India, they want to know if we have any saints to send them. And I read that, and I remember I called Andrell. Because the essence of what he's saying, he's saying these people in India, they desperately needed buildings. They desperately needed schools and hospitals, and they're useful. He said, but that wasn't actually what the people were looking for. And so what had happened is that the, the missionaries were so focused on making their lives better, they missed out the main reason why they were actually there. And so I called Andrea and I said, hey, whenever we do things from now on, we're going to keep giving money away. We're going to keep meeting physical, spiritual, emotional, whatever. We're going to keep doing it. But I said, make sure that what we do is never overshadowed for who we serve. Yeah. 
and why we do it. Make sure that they always know that Jesus has freed us, and that's why we do this. Make sure that they know that Jesus has paid the penalty that I deserve. That's why I'm so generous. I only give because Jesus first gave to me. Let us never forget that message because we have this way of looking at the immediate, and we miss out on what's most important. And so the question I want to ask this morning is what are we looking for? What are you looking for? You see, the pull in our hearts is to believe I'm, I'm looking for something that I can get myself. It, it, it's just maybe it's a new job. I just need a new job. I just I have this feeling in my job. It's just, it's just my job. That, that's what it is. Or for some of us, it's like, man, it's just it's, it's a little more money. It's, it's just a relationship. Once I'm in a relationship, like that's, that's what I'm looking for. It's just there, there's something I can do. I just need to start tearing the roof off. But what Jesus is saying, he's saying, I'm here to offer the one thing that you can't get yourself. And that is the forgiveness of sin. You want to know what's interesting in the story? The man never asks for forgiveness. Jesus just forgives him. Now, there's really no forgiveness without asking. And so one uh, commentator, he said, perhaps... Because if you guys remember, we read, it said the Pharisees were thinking and Jesus heard. He said, perhaps Jesus was able to hear the deeper thoughts of the paralyzed man. The thoughts, not I want to get better, but I actually want to get healed from my bigger issue. And so what he said, he said, what you need to understand is that Jesus is scandalous with his grace. He says, Jesus is actually aggressive with his grace. He's waiting to pour it out. He's waiting to forgive you. He's waiting to give you the thing that you actually need. Can I tell you something, church? You can search and you can search, but if you don't know what you're looking for, you'll never find it. I'm here to tell you what you're looking for. You're looking for the gap to be bridged, that space between you and God to be bridged, and it only happens with Jesus. And Jesus has done it. Jesus has done what we could not do ourselves. Annabelle, if you could come on the keys. Ephesians chapter 1 says, We praise God for the glorious grace that he has poured on us, those who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and the forgiveness of our sins. Do you want to know what forgiveness is? Forgiveness is freedom. That feeling, that feeling of not being good enough, that feeling like there's something else I need to do, something else I need to achieve, guess what? There's only one way for it to go away, and it's to accept what Jesus has done. It's the forgiveness of sin. And so maybe we don't feel good, maybe we don't feel like we're good enough, but guess what? Jesus has bridged the gap in his kindness. He's showered us and so this morning, I want to tell you, I want to let you know that Jesus does not want to heal what's most immediate in your life, but he wants to heal what's most important. He wants to bridge that gap. He wants to restore that relationship. He wants to make us whole. If we could just stand for a second, church. I want to give us the opportunity to respond to Jesus. Because maybe you're here today 
And maybe you've been looking for hope in the wrong places. Maybe you've been looking for hope and accomplishments. Maybe you've been waiting for God to do something. Guess what? God has done the greatest thing of all. And on the cross, he paid for our sins. What Jesus says to the man, he says, hey, I want you to know that your sins are forgiven. Because it's one thing to say it, but what's the tangible evidence? He says, stand up, rise. Your sins are forgiven. The word rise is the same Greek word that Mark later uses when Jesus rises from the dead. And so what you need to know is the confirmation that you are forgiven is the fact that the tomb is empty. That Jesus is not there. He rose again. He is greater than our sins. He's greater than our falling. He's greater than anything. And so this morning, there are people here, and maybe you've never made the decision before. To say, man, I just, I want Jesus. That's what I want. I want forgiveness. I want new life. If that's you this morning, we want to give you the opportunity. So with every head bowed, every eye closed, we don't want to embarrass you. We don't want to call you out. We just want to give you the opportunity to respond. If you're just saying, hey, I want to follow Jesus. I want to take what's most important. I want forgiveness. I want new life. I want new life. If that's you this morning, Jesus is reaching out. He's saying, son, he's saying, daughter, your sins are forgiven. I've paid the price. I've taken what you deserve. If that's you this morning, I'm going to count backwards from three and just show me your hand. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. In three, two, one, just show me your hand. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. God, you see every single hand. You see every single heart, Lord. I pray that for those who have made the decision today to follow you, to say, God, I want to live in your freedom. God, I pray that we can live in that light. We thank you so much for who you are, for your goodness, for your grace. We love you, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen, amen, amen. Hey, can we clap our hands? Come on. Hey, thank you so much for listening to that message. We hope that you were encouraged and inspired. Hey, if you want more information, if you've decided to follow Jesus, we encourage you to head over to kingdomchurch.ca right now and connect with us. We can't wait to get to know you. Until next time, take care.